Hi, thanks for joining. This is Richard Conrad, author of Culture Hacks, Deciphering Differences in American, Chinese, and Japanese Thinking. I'm listening to Culture Matters Podcast. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Hi there, my name is Chris Smith, and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode number 128. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, it makes good sense to do that right now because this podcast won't go away and you will get new updates if you actually do subscribe. Okay, who's this week's guest? Richard Conrad. Richard Conrad grew up in Washington, D.C., studied engineering and economics at Vanderbilt University and earned a master's degree in economics as a local but very local student at Funden University in Shanghai, China. And he later earned an MBA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Richard worked for the last 17 years for a large U.S. management firm, researching, analyzing and investing in Chinese and Japanese equities. Richard is fluent in Chinese and Japanese and continues to live in Asia with his family. It's a lively um, conversation we're having about how the influence of China, uh, the economic influence mainly, will develop and how the, the West might actually um, become a separate entity in that and turning us into a two, a two, two how do you say that, two system uh, economic um, uh, way of dealing and looking at, at money as well. Listen to the end, it becomes more and more interesting as we move along. Let's go right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Hey Richard, good afternoon or good morning or uh, good evening even. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, my pleasure. No, I've been looking forward to this also because we are recording this in September 2019 and you booked this already, I think, in June uh, 2019. So it's been like two and a half months or something, close to three months uh, in between the booking of the uh, of the time frame and finally we got the chance to talk to each other, right? That's right. Okay. All right. So, first question. Uh, pretty much the same question I ask all my guests to give us uh, to give us a little bit of a context, like who are we talking, who are we listening to. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you want. Where do you come from originally? Where are you now? And what would you consider your so-called cultural frame of reference? Oh, <laughs> I know you have about ten minutes for this. I'm going to make coffee and and wash the car, and I'll be back. <laughs> okay. So, I'm. Born and raised in the U.S., I grew up in Washington D.C. Um, I went to college in um, Vanderbilt, studied engineering, so pretty American. But after college, I went to Japan, and I've lived in Asia for the last 25 years, in between Japan, China, and Singapore. Um, I along the way, I got a degree as a local student 
at Fudan University in Shanghai in world economics, um, the only American in the class in the in my whole department. Um, and then since then, I've been working as an investor in Chinese and Japanese equities. Okay. Um, and your other question is, how would I identify myself culturally? Well, what's your cultural frame of reference? Meaning that um, if you go for two weeks to Cancun in Mexico, that doesn't give you a lot of, I mean, I'm not saying not, but it doesn't give you a lot of, of uh Mexican culture usually if you stay in one of those all-inclusive resorts that's what I that's what I mean I see yeah. my cultural frame of reference is I've lived in Japan for eight years I speak Japanese my wife is Japanese fluent reading and writing uh, after that I moved to China I lived there for five years um, fluent reading and writing in Chinese I will dream in Chinese and Japanese but I, I am American and my career um, for the last 17 years in Asia has been connecting um, between and amongst Americans, Chinese, and Japanese. Okay. Um, you said you were the only one, I mean, you got your degree in a, in a Chinese class, and you you're, were the only American. What, how was the curriculum in, in Chinese or, or in English? Completely. I was a local student. Everything was in Chinese. Um, I tested in as a local student. It was very, very difficult. Uh, all the classes, everything was Chinese classmates, Chinese teachers, Chinese textbooks. I got, uh, we studied Marxism. We studied planned economics. Mm. At the same time, we studied micro and macro in um, pirated MIT textbooks. We, uh, I got the full Chinese education. I got to see the world from Chinese eyes. Yeah, through the eyes of, uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I usually when I uh, have a guest on the, on, on the show, I don't prepare much many questions. Uh, that's not because I'm lazy, but I prefer to go with the flow really, uh, in terms of what my guests sort of bring to the table and, and sort of uh, link and, and latch onto that. Uh, but one of the things I did prepare, this is one of the prepared questions. What triggers your interest in Asia? I mean, you do engineering in the US, you're American born and raised, and all of a sudden, boom, you're in China or you go, you go towards Asia. Well, this will give away my age. When I was in college, <laughs> you want to compete seemed- then, Richard? Uh, (laughs) um, so you'll sympathize here. Of course. It seemed as though Japan were going to take over the world. We were extrapolating Japanese growth at the time. We were looking at the Japanese auto industry and other industries, really machine tools really start to dominate their U.S. competitors. It Mm -hmm. looked as though Japan was going to be a big force financially. And so I decided that uh, the Japanese seemed to understand the American market very well. We needed more Americans that understood the Japanese market. Mm-hmm. And so after college, I decided to move to Japan to learn Japanese. Was that then a patriotic move? I guess so. Um, I always had an interest in Asia ever since I was a kid, probably from Bruce Lee movies. Um, and my parents loved Chinese and Japanese food. Yeah. And then um, it was patriotic. Uh, it felt really like the U.S. was losing to Japan at the time. Uh-huh. And it was also a big sense of adventure. I, I've got to say, when I flew to Japan, I didn't know a person. I didn't know a soul in the country. I barely spoke any Japanese language. I I didn't even know where I was going to stay the first night. I just showed up. Um, but without giving away your age, I mean, can I ask what around what age or what age were you when you were on that flight to Japan? 22. 22. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that still gives you a lot of flexibility, I guess. 
in terms of, of uh, being able to, to, to deal with, with things, unexpected deals. I think, I guess if you're older, that becomes more difficult, no? It was wonderful. I was single. I didn't have any <laughs> worries. Um, I fig- I just thought I could figure it out. Mm-hmm. Now, having s- spent so many years in, in Asia, speaking J- Japanese and Chinese fluent and reading and being a- able to read the scripts as well, you haven't lost any of your American accent. Is that, how, how come? Oh, that's debatable. The people I work with, I've been in the same company for 17 years and I have people in the U.S. come up to me and ask me if I'm English. I, I almost fall to the ground. Yeah, I'm like, governor, what you mean? I don't think I sound because my personality has become more international. So to them, uh-huh. I seem less American. I'm The accent, it's hard to judge one's own accent. Mm-hmm. Definitely Japanese softened my English accent is what yeah. my friends have told me. Yeah, I can imagine. Is there, do you have, this is maybe not a fair question, but let's see what comes out. Do you have a preference or uh, China or Japan? Well, uh, no, I like them both. They're, uh-huh. they're very different. Yeah. Um, Japan is extremely orderly, uh, fantastically well run. Everything works. It's predictable. Um, very, very polite people. I wouldn't say boring, but China is definitely, it's a cacophony. It's more exciting. The Chinese are extremely friendly. The Japanese aren't friendly at all. I've, I've heard the analogy that Americans are like a peach. It's easy to get inside yeah. the, the surface, but you really can't get to the heart of Americans. Right. Whereas Chinese are like cracking open a coconut. It's hard to crack in, but once you get in, you get all the way to the middle. Yeah. The Japanese are like a coconut with a peach pit in the middle. You can't get in, and if you do, you can't get in there. Yeah. The, the yeah. Chinese were so much friendlier. Okay. Is it, this, is, this is something, is this your own opinion, or is this something that you have heard from other people as well? Well, I think people often misunderstand the Chinese and Japanese. So what I heard from other people is that Asians are like a coconut and Americans are like right. a peach. But that's that's not my experience at all. The Japanese and Chinese are very different. Yeah. it's. I mean, in the work that I do, and I've been doing this for the last 20 years and talking to people and, and, and addressing groups and et cetera, must have been in the thousands now. It's I've always heard, and I think I have to agree with, if you look at the top three, of countries, uh, Asian countries that are difficult to deal with, then Japan ranks number one, China number two, India number three. Of course, there are other country, countries in between as well. But that's sort of, I mean, over the last 20 years is, is, is sort of what I would conclude in terms of what other people have given back to me and my own experience with working also working in these three countries. Would you agree with that? I would. I can go in, I can give you my opinion on that if you're interested. Yeah, please. Um, so I have a framework on how we all think differently and Japanese see the world in literal terms. They reason intuitively and they believe in relative truth. Those are all yeah. different from Americans yeah. um, or Westerners. Yeah. We reason linearly and we believe in absolute truth. So that makes the and we aren't don't see the world in literal terms for the most part. So that makes the Japanese just thinking wise completely opposite of us but that that's confusion uh, confusion thinking right i mean what you're what you're just describing uh no that would be specific to japan okay um uh-huh. chinese thinking they reason in a lateral manner so japanese reason intuitively chinese reason laterally we would reason linearly um Ex- and explain then, the difference please richard if you can sure 
So in the West, we think in a linear manner, step by step from subject to object. Mm -hmm. Um, For this reason, we developed the scientific method. um, And that's why over the last 500 years, growth really took off. We had the Industrial Revolution. We're able to learn something. And then because we can prove it step by step, you can teach someone else and build on that knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, cause and effect. Chinese thinking is lateral. They actually go from subject to subject instead of subject to object. It's all about context. Right. Um, for example, there's I, I, I racked my brain to think of a Western example of lateral thinking. And I came up with a guy named, I think it was Willie Sutton. Mm-hmm. And he was a bank robber. And they asked him, how come you rob banks? And to a linear thinker, the linear answer is he's the subject. And so the answer is I needed the money or I did it for the excitement or I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. But he was a lateral thinker. So his answer was because that's where the money is. And that's how lateral thinkers work. They go from subject to subject. A more recent example is there was a big contract manufacturer in China and they had a problem because their workers were working 12 hour days, six days a week. And in despair, they would jump out of their dormitories from the top floor to kill themselves. Yeah. Well, this gave very bad press to this contract manufacturer. So they needed to solve the problem. Mm And so not in a linear way like we would solve it. They thought in a lateral way, they shifted the subject to themselves, looks bad for them. So they built nets around the dormitories to catch anyone that, that jumped. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that I've, I've, it's, it's a good story. It's an interesting approach. And it's, it's even more interesting that this is not something, this is not even a, a fake story. I mean, this is something that really happened. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very it's, much. It's, it's the, um, what do you think applies to, uh, or maybe to both countries? Um, you have a chicken and the egg. Uh, no, the question is what came first, the chicken and the egg? Is that a question which is relevant to Japanese and Chinese? They say it. Um... What, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the Western way of thinking is, is indeed, okay, we have to figure out what was first, the chicken or the egg. And it's, oh. it's it's mind-boggling and breaking. And then a Chinese or a Japanese, and correct me if I'm wrong, would say, I don't care what came first. I have a chicken uh, and an egg, so I can make an egg and I can make some chicken food if you want. So they don't really look like, what is the where does it come from? But more, okay, this is what I have. This is what, what I can do with it. Okay, so you've touched on the heart of the matter. That's actually a very deep question. Okay. In the West, we believe in a beginning. Uh, for most of our history, it was God said, "Let the, in the beginning, God said, let there yeah. be light. Yeah. But later on, science came along and said, 13.8 billion years ago, there was a big bang, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, time has moved forward linearly from that point until today. Exactly. And so in the West, we believe in linear time. And my contention is that that belief in linear time because you had then have uh, fixed points of reference, absolute points of reference, it led to the Western belief in absolute truth, and out of that came our linear logic. In the East, and my definition of the East, I'm talking about from India eastward, so India to China to Japan. Pakistan not, not included? I don't, I'm not familiar, I've never lived in Pakistan, so I can't speak on that. Okay. I, okay. I'm not sure. Um, in that cultural background, time is linear, is circular. It's always Mm. circular. Mm -hmm. Now we understand circular time because our clocks are circular. Minutes are circular, hours, weeks, days. It's Friday again. It's springtime again. We believe in circular time except for years. For us, years are are linear. You can't say it's 1989 again. 
Yeah. But in the East, in circular time, they believe that there are infinite universes that have come into being infinitely before and infinitely for in the future. And so with circular time, there are no fixed points of reference, which has led to the relative uh, view of truth. And out of that has come their different um, methods of reasoning, nonlinear methods of reasoning. And um, to me is the major difference between the East and the West in terms of culture. And it gets to your point exactly. It doesn't matter what came first, the chicken or the egg. They both have always existed and they exist in a circular relationship. Okay. Yeah, good point. Nice, nice way of explaining it. Thank you. If I, if I can sort of segue in using this example, segue into, um, into your line of business or finance or towards the book that you've, uh, that you uh, wrote, Cultural, Culture Hacks, Deciphering Differences in American, Chinese and Japanese Thinking. If you look at the, at, at the market, the financial markets, the, the, I guess the systems, um, uh, airline schedules, uh, I don't know. I'm just coming up with these, these examples here. They are very, very Western, very linear as well. It, is it, was, is, or is, is it still very difficult for, uh, say, a, chi- a country like China and Japan to adapt to that? Yeah, it's difficult for different reasons. What I'm trying to say, Richard, is that they're following, say, I'm making air quotes here, our system. And I wonder how our system would have looked if we followed, if we, we would have followed their system. Yeah. Um, so it's not like the Indians or the Chinese or the Japanese never felt gravity. They did, but they <laughs> never had the linear thinking to connect the apple falling to Newton's step of solving for the force of gravity, that Mm -hmm. you could mathematically solve it. And then out of that, you can develop physics. Uh And um, Einstein's explaining what gravity is. They could never develop those ideas in a linear manner. But after we discovered them, after we um, developed the scientific method, they could copy it. And so they've been copying our way of thinking and then applying it in their own countries. And once they had linear, uh, sorry, scientific method, um, they could copy it. And then that's led to a rapid development and catch up in their economies. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Well, specifically, the Japanese are literal thinkers. Uh Um, The opposite would be people from India who are abstract thinkers. And finance is is an abstract, abstract subject. So the Japanese really struggle um, with finance. So in my business, you look at the Japanese companies, they're some of the best manufacturers in the world, mm-hmm. um, extremely good at precision, extremely good at running plants, extremely good at high volume, high quality manufacturing. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand concepts like return on invested capital or return on equity or weighted average cost of capital. So they're extremely inefficient financially. Their banks are terrible at risk-adjusted lending. That's why they have had two lost decades of growth because yeah. they have this um, very uh, weak financial system. So that's how, how it um, impacts Japan. China's case, they're in between literal and abstract, so they're better at finance than the Japanese are, but they're still not great at it. And that's the Achilles heel of the Chinese system today. They They don't understand how to lend money on a risk-adjusted basis. And so they've developed just a massive pile of debt um, today. And so to your question, they adopted our system. They've done better with certain parts of it, particularly through their lateral thinking, but they, they do have areas like finance where they struggle. 
Okay. Is, is this, are you then sort of implying that they, that the, um, the Chinese economy eventually might implode as well? Like it happened in the U.S. initially in 2007, eight? Well, that's interesting. So the U.S. has an absolute view of truth. So when we had the, the global financial crisis in the U.S., mm-hmm. our view is you have to mark assets to market. You have to reflect reality. And so the banks had huge write-offs and the U.S. had the big downturn. But then because the banks had cleaned their balance sheets, you could have the recovery and growth again. Mm-hmm. In Asia, with a relative view of truth, Japan went through something similar in the 90s after their twin property and, and real estate bubbles burst. Mm-hmm. But they don't believe in absolute truth. They didn't believe in reflecting reality. So they never marked a market and their banks just got saddled with zombie loans that they continued rolling over to zombie companies. And that was a huge weight on the Japanese economy over the last 20 years. Now, they never went through the deep downturn, painful downturn that the U.S. went through but it prevented them from having a solid recovery. Mm. 20 years ago, China had a massive debt problem. Up to 40% of their loans were non-performing. And they decided, relative truth, don't mark them to market. They call it evergreening, extend and pretend. And because they joined the WTO soon thereafter and the massive growth they enjoyed in, in the last 15 plus years, they were able to outgrow their debt problem. But today they've developed a new debt problem. And once again, they're going to try and extend and pretend. But instead of joining the WTO, this time there's actually a threat they're going to be leaving the WTO. So they're they're facing a, a tougher situation. So I would to answer your question, I wouldn't say they're facing a sharp downturn like the US. They're mm-hmm. facing more of lost decades of growth or slow, much slower growth like Japan. Is that is that then I mean I, I read and what I what I know what I read is what I know uh, in terms of uh, China should at least have eight uh, percent economic growth every year because if not they would not be able to contain the population so to speak in terms of of uh, wealth development. That's a very interesting question. Um, they've now downgraded that to six. They need to maintain six percent um, in order for, to uh, support employment. But that's only what they say. That's only the surface level truth. Mm-hmm. The reality is China is buying robots at a pace we've never seen anyone do before. Robots and China for, for manufacturing purposes. For manufacturing, yeah. Correct. So they're they're considering robots much more important than blue collar workers. Right. So their robot penetration today at around $10,000 GDP per capita is the level Japan only reached. And Japan's a highly robotized economy. Uh-huh. Japan only reached after they were at $26,000 GDP per capita. And so China's not nearly as concerned about employment as they say. One reason is because of the um, one child policy. Mm-hmm. They have this aging, shrinking, working age population, and the young kids coming into the workforce were only child kids, and they're not interested in the 12-hour day, six days a week jobs that their generation older than them was interested in. So China's employment problem is changing rapidly, but the real issue is keeping the plants in China, and so that's why they're rapidly adopting robotics. As, as opposed to, where should they go to? The factories? Yeah. So this is a deep question. This is the big struggle. Um, The U.S. has a view that the factories, um, some of them could go back to the U.S. It's about 10, automation-wise, it's about 10 years too early for that. Mm -hmm. But um, naturally, they're going to move. As they started in Japan, they moved to Taiwan and Korea. 
then they move to China. It starts with light manufacturing, then moves to heavier manufacturing. So light manufacturing today is moving into a lot to Vietnam and Thailand, mm, okay. um, some to the Philippines, Indonesia, India, some, and then Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Okay. All right. It's it's um uh, it's a, I think it's a fascinating subject to talk about. Typically, because you're also very specific on China and Japan, usually people have a general idea, or or but you you can at least uh, focus and, and see differences between the United States and these two big Asian countries. You said in the um uh, in an email that was sent, that email communication that we had before this interview actually is that you say that that China genuinely wants to avoid conflict, and China generally uh, and they do, however, have a fervent a fervent sorry desire to avoid invasion psychological or otherwise and will fight to build a sufficient buffer around china to make them feel safe a couple of words that sort of jump out to me china wants to avoid conflict is, is that true i mean you write it but can you elaborate a little bit please sure so if you if you go back to the history of japan they were a nomadic people um, very warlike uh, very successful um, at fighting. Whenever they fought China in war, they would win. They were always the aggressors. Um, they had the samurai culture. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at China, it's actually um, an agrarian society culture originally. Mm -hmm. It's um, very different. The Chinese weren't imperialistic. Uh, the Japanese were. Japanese tried to take over Asia. The Chinese have never tried to do that, even though for large parts of their history, they were the strongest country by far. Mm -hmm. Um, China built a wall actually to keep the foreigners out, to keep the barbarian invaders out. Uh, they and it, and it all it served to do was to keep them in. Um, but their their tradition is not expansionary, of course. Um, but if you look at the history of the last 750 years, half of that time they were ruled by non-Han Chinese people, basically foreigners. Um, in the Qing uh, Yuan Dynasty, I'm sorry, they were ruled by the Mongolians. In the Qing Dynasty, by the Manchurians, and then you had the um, what they call the Hundred Years uh, Century of Humiliation under Western powers. Mm. And so, when you've got over half the last 750 years under um, foreign control, mm -hmm. there's a very strong desire to get control back to the Han and then to keep it with the Han. Over 90% of Chinese identify themselves as Han Chinese. So there's a fervent desire to protect themselves from invasion again and being taken over by an outside force. Mm -hmm. And and then you write, uh, I mean, an invasion, that's like a psychological, but also military, I guess. Yes, that's right. It's both. Um, they're actually what they're paranoid about is military invasion. They're they worry about the Japanese at a level that you and I would find hard to comprehend even today. The whole point of Tibet was because that was a launching pad um, for anyone that wanted to invade China from the west. They want to get Taiwan because that helps gives them access um, to Blue Ocean and it, it's the unsinkable aircraft carrier anyone could use for invading China. Mm. So their desire, the whole South China Sea is about building a new Great Wall of China to create a new buffer um, to make it all the more difficult for anyone to invade China. Okay, so this is what they do from uh, like a, a physical military perspective. How do they do that, um, for instance, with cyber cyber stuff? I mean, the next level of war would be cyber, cyber war uh, or financial as well. I mean, that's also your expertise. 
So this is something I learned as a student in China. Their, their view of the world is different than ours. In the West, we had Francis Fukuyama that said the end of history, the whole world's becoming liberal and democratic. And one reason the West decided it would be okay to let China in the WTO was that as they got wealthier, they would become more liberal and democratic. Their view of history is totally different. They think time moves in a corkscrew. And it goes from feudalist society to capitalism to socialism to communism. And they believe this is an historical inevitability. Uh, Mao took them out of the feudal era and tried to take them straight into communism. And that was a huge failure. Um, just to give an example of relative truth, the Great Leap Forward, um, if you're familiar with that, in China, it's taught as the three years of, of great natural disasters. But there were no natural disasters. Yeah. It was all men. But that was their relative truth uh, description of that. Deng Xiaoping, with great lateral thinking, said, OK, we have a socialist system, but I want to grow the economy. We can't do that with socialist economics because they're terrible. So we're going to use capitalist economics, but I can't call it that. So he called right. it market economics. Yeah. And then China has gone through this great growth period. My reading on it is they believe they're now ready to move into the socialist era. And the socialist era... Um, where it failed in the past is going to succeed in the future. And I get this from reading Xi Jinping's speeches comes from big data, machine learning and AI is going to replace the invisible hand. And then that's going to drive them into the into the next stage of development. And so what's happening is they're moving on this path towards their vision of technology enabled, supported socialism. And we in the West are still on our liberal democratic paradigm. So the two worlds are, are moving farther apart. And the Chinese from the beginning took their internet and separated it from mm -hmm. our internet, from the global internet. It was a separate system. And over time, as their technology improves, they take that part of their economy and separate it from, from the West. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to build out with One Belt, One Road and with the renminbi being accepted in more countries to build out their own sphere and their own world. And it does appear to me that we're moving into two separate worlds. The pace is um, not decided yet, but we're moving into a Western world and then into a Chinese world. And that this is another way to answer your question. Sorry, I'm like a Chinese person. I'm yeah. really all about context. And then yes, you get the answer. Please be direct, Richard. Please be direct. <laughs> so that's how they're keeping out Western culture and Western thinking by creating their own separate system. Okay. That sounds interesting. And in, in your book, again, Culture Hacks, um, it's, it's called Deciphering Differences in American Chinese and Japanese Thinking. You, you bring up this idea. The biggest challenge over the next 50 years will be for the United States to accommodate China's rice. Okay. Now that's a statement. How do they do that? How could they do that? Well, first off, I, I want to give I'll give the answer first. I'm optimistic on the end point. The U.S. is not really an imperialistic country either. I know people don't agree with that sometimes. I get a lot of pushback on it. But for example, when the Philippine Congress voted the U.S. out of the Subic Bay Naval Base, the U.S. left. There was no way the US, uh, Philippine military could have pushed the U.S. military out. The U.S. left. The U.S. does not did not conquer Iraq and make it into the 51st state. We're just not territorial the way an empire is, like the Soviet empire right. was, yeah. or the Japanese empire wanted to be. The Chinese are the same way. 
both countries think their country is the center of the world and everyone else is peripheral. And so the end point is going to be a bipolar world of U.S. and Chinese power supported by who their allies are. Probably Europe aligns more with the U.S., mm-hmm. um, Southeast Asia, West Asia is going to align more with China. And so we're going to end up in a bipolar world. Mm-hmm. And I suspect it'll be a pretty peaceful world mm-hmm. um, because both countries um, are focused on wealth and uh, prosperity. And growth, yes. Yeah. And growth. Mm-hmm. The problem is getting from A to B and how we get there. And the Chinese, the problem with the U.S. and China is both countries are bullies and the countries around them don't like that. So there's going to be a lot of stress here and a lot of worry. Um, the Chinese keep bullying their neighbors and um, and Donald Trump has taken, I think he's made some good strategic decisions, but the tactics he takes towards accomplishing his goals are head scratching. And so it all hits a flashpoint today with the trade war between the U.S. and China because the U.S. has finally realized they made a huge mistake thinking that China was going to become this liberal democracy and that we could turn a blind eye to Chinese intellectual property theft and cyber espionage and forced technology transfer and limited access for U.S. companies into China. And the U.S. has finally realized, okay, this isn't a good relationship. We need we need fair trade, but it's got to be fair in both directions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little deep. I'm going to no, jump fine. in here. It's so fine. The, Chinese- the, the, the advantage, Richard, of this podcast is, is that people can rewind it and listen to this again. Excellent. I think this is the most important point. This is the key point in the world today. The Chinese are relative truth believers. They'll never go into an agreement where the other party does better than them. So, for example, there are no free trade agreements between Japan, Korea and China, because if there were, one group would benefit more than the other. And so whoever the less beneficial group would say, no way, I'm not Mm going to let them benefit more than me because it's all relative. In the West, we believe in absolute truth. The U.S. can have a NAFTA agreement with Mexico and Canada because maybe Mexico benefits a little more. Maybe Canada benefits a little more. Maybe it's the U.S. But we all benefit more. The pie gets bigger. And as long as we're all growing, absolutely, we can agree to that. When the U.S. agreed to China's entry into the WTO, the U.S. benefited a little and China benefited a lot. And China liked that because they were the relative winners. And the U.S. liked it because they won in an absolute sense. But now, today, the US, China's become so big and the um, trade relationship so unfair that the U.S. is saying, actually Donald Trump is saying, um, we need to have more equitable trade. Now, Donald Trump is an unusual American because he believes in relative truth, which is a nice way to say um, he has a very flexible view of the truth. Yeah, He's so he um, and also he has a lack of one of his um, characteristics is a lack of empathy towards other people. And mm-hmm. so as a negotiator, this gives him that zero sum mentality mm-hmm. of a relative truth believer. He only wants to be the relative winner in any negotiation. So the China, she and Trump are in a negotiation today and Trump saying, OK, shrink the trade surplus. Let's have a more equal deal here. And the Chinese are saying absolutely not, because if we have any deal like that, you're going to benefit more than us. So they've come back with some pretty bad deals saying we'll buy more beef, which is, you know, a way of importing water and we'll buy more soybeans or we'll stop buying your soybeans and then we'll start buying them again. Mm -hmm. 
And Trump's saying, well, I can't accept that because we're not relatively better off. And so both sides, we've seen over the last year and a half, have been unable to find a, a situation on the win-win side because one group would be the relative winner. And this is where it gets tricky. Mm -hmm. So now we're in a situation where the only way to win is by hurting the other person more than you. To an absolute truth believer, this makes no sense. Why would you hurt yourself and have an absolute decline, a shrinking of the pie? But Donald Trump and Xi Jinping and the Chinese in general don't think that way. So now we're in a contest to see who can hurt the other more, because if the other gets hurt more, then I win in a relative sense. And I believe that's the best paradigm for understanding uh, the trade war today. So and, and is there like a one, two, three step out of this? Or should should... I don't know, we or they just be the smart one and say, okay, this is enough. Let's cut this. Because this is, I mean, this is hurting the US, it's hurting China, but it's also hurting us. I mean, us in the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about it is the US was um, kind of asleep at the wheel. And now, apart from Donald Trump, both sides of the party, the national security folks, um, political people, business people are now realizing uh, the challenges with the relationship with China. So it's impossible to go back to where we were, how it goes forward. Um, probably I don't expect they can, they can walk it back. The only way it could walk back is if the Chinese made concessions and maybe if the U S shifted the trade war to more of the tech war and started a finance war, they could put enough pressure on the Chinese mm -hmm. where the Chinese would try and get some interim deal. Um, but short of that, it's just going to be tit for tat back and forth, worse and worse. Yeah, I mean, China giving in would also cause loss of face, of course, which is a culturally unacceptable phenomenon. Totally unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 35 minutes in the, into the conversation, Richard. I find it really interesting. Usually I, I keep it to 30 minutes, but this... This is uh, and uh, this is re and this is now is happening in the world, uh, September 2019. Um, people can all can find this all back in your book, Culture Hacks. Correct? That's right. Okay. Just um, one, no, two more questions. The um, uh, can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent, please? Well, um, read my book. <laughs> That's what comes to mind. Um, It's an acceptance that we are all different, and that's not a value judgment. One's not better than the other. And 25 years overseas, dealing with people from all over the world, I've realized that you want to find different people of different strengths. Different systems have different strengths. And we, I only believe in one race, the human race. But there are different languages, there are different cultures, different religious beliefs, different societies. And that leads to these differences in thinking. So the first one is to recognize the differences. And then the next is whenever you get those moments of confusion, um, to learn from those moments of confusion, why did that person do that? Mm -hmm. The initial reaction is to get mad. But when you've been overseas as long as I have, you learn getting mad doesn't help. Try and learn. I'm going to tell you a quick story here. Yes, please. I was in a train station in China soon after I'd moved there. And I'd been living in Japan. And it was a small town called Shaoxing. And there was a train station lady yelling at this farmer um, who was sitting in a chair that he had to pay a 10 RMB fine for spitting on the station floor. Mm. And he was trying to ignore her. But she finally, and this had gone on for a while, she finally said, if you don't pay, I won't let you on your train. Mm. 
And that broke his silence. And he said, it wasn't me. I didn't spit. She pointed to the ground right in front of him. There was all the evidence. It was China. So there was a big crowd. We were all watching. And we all went, ooh. And he said, okay, okay. I didn't know the rule. So she pointed up to the wall and there was a sign right above him, no spitting. Mm. And he, he sat back down again. He got very quiet. And then he stood up and he pulled out 20 RMB. And she screamed at him, fine for spittings, only 10 RMB. Then he looked up at the ceiling and we didn't know what he was doing. So we all looked up at the ceiling and the station lady looked up at the ceiling uh-huh. and then he went <laughs> and spit at her feet, handed her the 20 RMB, mm-hmm. grabbed his bags and he walked to the train like he was the king of the world right. and all the people were cheering him. I spent the entire train ride home thinking about what, how his think, how did he solve the problem? And from then on, when I was in China, whenever I had to solve problems, I always thought to myself, what would the man in the train station do? And he was really the introduction to linear lateral logic to me. Um, so the lesson there is observe whenever you have those cultural moments, really dig into it, write it down, ask people from that culture. What did it mean? Why did that person do that? That's the best way. Um, and then keep notes. And then the the third one is to apply it mm. and use your cultural learnings. And so a couple of weeks after that, I was in a bus in Shanghai, old ra- rickety bus uh-huh. on this raised highway going way too fast. My American friend who could speak Chinese yelled at the driver, slow down. So yeah. what did the Chinese driver do? He went even faster. Right. So I thought to myself, what would the man in the train station do? So I went up to the driver and I said, it's my first time in Shanghai. This is a magnificent city. I've never seen it before. You're going so fast. I'm missing it all. He immediately slowed down and drove at a safe speed the rest of the way. So once you learn those lessons, then you have to start to apply the lessons. And then today I just observe. Mm. I watch how Westerners make cultural mistakes and misunderstand. And they usually talk over Asians is a big problem. And, and so I observe and I l- learn. And, and that's the key. Those are the three keys. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Richard Conrad, the book is called Culture Hacks, Deciphering Differences in American Chinese and Japanese Thinking. Where can they get the book? And how can people get in touch if they want to? Um, on Amazon, uh, you can find Culture Hacks, mm-hmm. Richard Conrad. Um, I'm on Twitter, Culture Hacks One, and email Ozaka Ozaki Yutaka98 at gmail.com. Okay, wonderful. Those will be in the show notes as well, as there will be a, a link to the book uh, that you can then get on Amazon. Thank you so much, Richard, and I'm pretty sure we'll talk to each other in the future. Thanks, Chris. This was, I'm really grateful that you had me on. Thank you. Thank Richard again for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this, um, the conversation we had. If you like what I do, if you like the podcast that, uh, that you're listening to, the Culture Matters podcast, why don't you leave a review on iTunes and that'll make it more available for other people as well. All right. The music you hear in the background is from Ben Sound. You can check them out at bensound.com. I am Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast. I'll be back in two weeks' time. And two weeks ago, episode 127, we had Andrew Henderson talking about the best countries to live in when it comes to the broadest aspect of quality of life. So make sure you check out that episode as well. Talk to you soon. Bye. That's it for this episode. 
Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.